Welcome to the balm. The balm is what we need for healing right now. A balm is uh, a substance often of medicinal value that can help heal a wound. And the balm is about having conversations about how we can heal wounds related to race and racism in the United States. I'm your host, Sherry Dunn, and I'm incredibly excited to be interviewing Loretta Ross, who's a visiting professor at Smith College. She is a woman who's had many years in the fight for reproductive rights and trying to bring the voices of Black women and people of color center. She has written and co-written three books on reproductive justice, undivided rights, women of color organizing for reproductive justice, reproductive justice and introduction, and racial reproductive justice foundations, theory and practice. She has appeared on CNN, BET, Lead Story, Good Morning America, The Donahue Show, and many others. Her activism began at 16 when she was tear gassed at a demonstration at her first, as a first-year student at Howard University in the 70s. As a teenager, she was involved in anti-apartheid and anti-gentrification activism in Washington, D.C., and was a founding member of the D.C. Study Group. Loretta, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. Thank How you, you for having me on your show. Great. Hey, Loretta, I wanted to chat with you today for so many reasons. First of all, you've you've one of these people who've been working in the foreground and the background around reproductive rights, around women's rights and the rights of black women and women of color. And so many things are going on right now. So many con- uh, things have converged since since when we set up this interview, RBG has died. Uh, a new Supreme Court justice has been nominated. There's a concern again about reproductive rights. And there's also been a, a conversation that uh, was had in the New York Times about the term women of color. And so I'd love to talk to you about all of that. It's so much to unpack. But I want to kind of first start with um, hearing a little bit from you about where you are now in the kind of story around reproductive rights, where you are with what's happening with RBG, where you are in your scholarship. Yeah, where are you right now? What are you feeling and thinking in this moment? Well, we should always remember that the fight to rush a new appointment to the Supreme Court by the Republicans is part of their strategy that should not just be framed as a fight over abortion rights. I think they are willing to pack all the courts to protect themselves from criminal prosecution. I don't actually think that they care about these issues, but how we frame our fight back does matter. It is, of course, about abortion rights, but it's also about attacking the 14th Amendment, which guarantees equality under the law, the 13th Amendment that ended slavery, the 15th Amendment that's the right to vote, uh, the 19th Amendment for women's rights to vote, the First Amendment, freedom of the press. I mean, they are doing a multi-front assault on democracy and our civil liberties and human rights. And so I actually chastise people who only think that this is about abortion rights, because even Mm -hmm. though I am a proponent of abortion rights, I think narrowing down the lens so that we don't intersect race, gender, class, citizenship, all the issues that really matter to us as Black women really does our movement and the fight a disservice. So my first thing is get your framing right. Don't reduce it to one issue 
and don't create this artificial binary between human rights, civil rights, and women's rights. Wow, I I really appreciate you bringing that to the forefront because this has been a big passion discussion of mine that there has been a disconnect from civil rights, women's rights, and human's rights. And so what I see, and I could be wrong, is that a lot of young women, particularly young white women, don't see themselves in the context of connected to civil rights, women's rights, human rights, that some people see themselves in kind of isolation. They don't see that they're interconnected. Well, it's very important to realize that, you know, our foremothers or forefathers gifted us with the framework of human rights. I mean, Frederick Douglass said in 1858 that we are part of a human rights movement because he was protesting the lynching of a black man in New York City. Malcolm X said it. Martin Luther King said that we need to build a human rights movement. And so it's only because we teach that Malcolm, I mean, that Martin Dr. King had a dream, but nobody told us that he had a plan. <laughs> we don't even know <laughs> that as a women's rights activist, I'm part of the women's rights wing of a human rights movement, working with the Black Lives Matter movement, which is part of the racial justice wing of the human rights movement. And out there, you know, where the fires are burning down California, that's the environmental justice wing of the human rights movement. So we're actually part of the same struggle if we use an intersectional analysis. But if we allow ourselves to be divided and separated and conquered, then what I call the neo-fascist win, because we, we spend our best bullets on each other. Yeah. Talking about that um, spending bullets on each other leads us a little bit to this conversation about how we see each other and the concept of women of color. So there was a, a prominent uh, op-ed in the New York Times, I think it was like maybe two weeks ago. I think it was the Post, the Washington oh, the Post. Post. Sorry, yeah. yep, the Washington Post, got that wrong. And um, two uh, women, Black women writers, really took the concept of women of color to task and cited you. Um, didn't really flesh out your thinking, but kind of did what I would call a little bit of an intellectual drive-by on you about the concept of women of color. So I'd like to hear from you about this, the concept, the, the framework of the idea. What do you, you know, and the kind of modern attacks. I'd like to hear your voice. Well, the two women who wrote it uh, are friends of mine. So I actually didn't read it as an intellectual drive-by. We had actually had many conversations on this subject. And one of the things I think activists need to learn is that you can agree to disagree and still remain friends. Mm -hmm. We don't all have to see the same thing the same way. Uh, The term women of color, of course, I've said on video, was created as a term of solidarity when Black women created a plan of action that other women who were called minority wanted to be included in. So it was a self-determined term by Black women where we talked about how to be in solidarity with Native American, Asian American, and Latina women. And so we never felt that it was imposed on us. Now, I think what the writers of that editorial were talking about was the hidden anti-Blackness within other communities of color 
and the obvious anti-Blackness within the white supremacist movement. And so they feel, perhaps correctly, that when you need to say Black, you need to say Black and stop substituting the term people of color in it because you're revealing your anti-Blackness and your difficulty in enunciating the word Black. Mm-hmm. So I think that when we use it intentionally as a term of solidarity, the term people of color and women of color works very well. But when we're calling specific attention to the negative impacts of white supremacy on black folks, we need to say black and not just people of color. And so well, it's an well, and 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 for me, not an either or. I, I love that, that it's an and 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 not an either or. Um, the fact that it's an and 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 not an either or is really important because I think what has happened is a lot of people see women of color and then people of color as an erasure, that the goal is to erase Black people from the conversation so that it's one thing when people internally in the activist community are talking to each other, but it's another thing when white people are using the term. So that's how some people come down on it. Do you see a distinction between when white folks are using the term and when people of color together are in an organizing space to talk about the concept? No, because I don't use essentialist things like that. It depends on the politics of the person using the term because all skin folk ain't kin folks, as we found out. So, so just because a black person says something doesn't mean I automatically agree with them. And just because a white person doesn't, that I automatically disagree with that. That's, that's just a little too primitive for my taste, too simplistic. So it depends on what are the politics and the context in which the term is used. Now, what you raise is something that I'm constantly protesting and that there is a strain of white supremacy on the left that makes them eager to substitute non-black voices of other people of color when they can't mm-hmm. confront their own internalized white supremacy. So you, mm-hmm. you find brown girls being, in, being used to serve as surrogates for all people black or whatever. And so you have to call attention to that because we cannot fight white supremacy unless we divest ourselves of white supremacy on the left. And mm-hmm. actually it took a South Asian woman to point that out to me because about 20 years ago, I was applauding the fact that the South Asian woman had become the director of a local women's fund here. And she said, Loretta, I want you to notice that in a city that is majority black, they did not choose a black woman. Mm-hmm. And I know you support me, but notice that in the conversations I'm in, people are doing everything in their power not to know it as blackness. Well, you know, that's very interesting because that reminds me of the the issue about affirmative action, right? In the early days and how um, white women were able to benefit because companies could bring in a minority who was a white, a woman, a white woman, but still avoid black people, you know, blackness, this, this doing, I call it throwing everything in the kitchen sink in front of the conversation about anti-blackness. People will put everything they can in the way so that they don't have to address and don't have to discuss the impact of anti-blackness. But the other part of this, which I find very interesting is from a historical perspective, until the organizing principle of women of color and then it's kind of offshoot people of color really came to be, 
Previously, we had a pursuit of whiteness in the United States and or white adjacency. In other words, you know, we look at the early days of how the Irish became white, how the Italians became white, how whiteness was an offer and acceptance given to certain European communities. And then everybody else kind of, I like to call it like the Harry Potter sorting hat, tried to get as close to whiteness as possible and really, you know, didn't want to be connected so much to black people and the anti-black struggle. But there has been something about the consciousness of women of color that is starting to break that down. In other words, yes, there is anti-Blackness in other communities. But on the other hand, having some way to think about ourselves together has opened up, I know for me personally, more conversations with Asian women, Latinx women, other women about our shared oppression issues that I would say, because I'm you know 52, and I would say in my 20s, there was no conversation fully like that. I mean, people didn't, you know, having like an open race, race-based conversation with an Asian person or a Hispanic person just didn't happen as much. And so there is some power, perhaps, in seeing ourselves in that way, do you think? Well, what we're talking about is a cornerstone of Black feminist theory. If you read the 1977 Combahee River Collective Statement, they talk about working in concert with other oppressed people. I mean, so it's, I'm sorry you didn't see it in your 20s, because that's probably about when that statement came out. But back then, we didn't have social media with which we could widely distribute those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But if, if you look at the early writings of Mary uh, McLeod Bethune, if you, just, if you just go back and look at our history, Black feminists have always stood in solidarity with other oppressed people because we understand strategic struggle. And we write books and theory about it all the time. That's where the concept of intersectionality came from, the whole concept of identity politics. And so what we lack is access to the media organs that can make sure that this uh, knowledge that we produce is widely known for all the generations that we've been talking about it. But that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just means it's not widely known. I just want to say, too, that I... I do recognize it exists in scholarship. I think what I more meant was coming down to everyday conversation, that there's been something, something has happened, something has changed significantly about day-to-day conversation. I think you're right. Black women have always known about the collective nature of oppression and the collective nature of freedom, right? And we think of things from this directive, but this there's been something more robust recently about the conversation across racial lines uh, that from a day-to-day perspective that I have not seen. I guess that's what I mean, more than that there hasn't been scholarship about it. Yeah, and I don't think scholarship is the right word. It's, it's how we actually practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think academics write stuff until the people have already done it. Okay, so it's not like we're leading with scholarship. Scholarship describes phenomena that's already occurred. Not, Mm -hmm. not they don't create things out of thin air. I love it. You know that that's what we do as academics. We write about what the folks have actually done, as opposed to you know owning the the beginning of that thing. Um, but. If you go back to the beginning of the 
you know, 20th century when black women were demanding for the world's colored people, they called it back then, and congresses of the world's colored people. And black people were involved in the anti-colonial struggles around the world, whether they took place in Africa or the Philippines or Latin America. I mean, we've always had that sharp, critical edge. What we have not had is the ability to make this work largely known amongst our people. Mm-hmm. So that, there's, there is that. So I think social media, you're absolutely right in saying there's something different now because we have the uh, amplification of social media now mm-hmm. to make this information more democratized and more widely known to people. We're not just dependent on three television stations <laughs> to tell us what in the world is going on or I'm old enough to remember how eagerly we read Jet and Ebony magazines to tell us what was going on. So we do, there is an amplification that's taking place, but it's really important to say that we own these concepts of building cross-racial and international and transnational solidarity. We own those concepts. We don't have to beg the anybody else for their use <laughs> yeah and and the fact that well I know working here in Atlanta we had the world social forum here in the US social forum I'm sorry here in 2007 and there was a lot of conversation about black Latino relationships mm-hmm. in terms of the migrant workers that were coming here to the south who are being totally treated like they were sharecroppers from from a long time before, even worse than sharecroppers in some ways. And so at the U.S. Social Forum, we just coined this quick phrase, you know, you new slaves need to learn from the old slaves how stuff really works. (laughs) 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 And that was seen as a statement of solidarity. Mm -hmm. Just because you are being exploited now doesn't mean that you're an expert on deconstructing white supremacy like we indigenous people and we black people have known for years. Uh Well, and also to one of the parts of your scholarship, the way you talk about it is that you, you, you're not asking black people not to be black. You, you're, you would never advocating that. Black and black. I love black. (laughs) (laughs) And there's been a misunderstanding or sometimes people misread what you are saying about that solidarity that they they don't you know you can be I can be a woman and a black woman I can be a black woman and a person of color I can be a black woman and a woman of color like you don't ha- you know what I mean and so there's a mis you you know people have kind of put words in your mouth in different articles that I've read that I don't think that's what you said well I can't take responsibility for the lens of trauma through which people receive my offerings. I can only take responsibility for making the offering, but how they see it, how they read it, every artist, every writer, every public speaker has to just give up trying to control people's reactions to what you we paint, write, or say. You don't have that magical power that makes people receive things in the way you meant them. And so, and, and also I have a lot of compassion for the fact that so many black women in particular are so traumatized by their early childhood experiences of childhood sexual abuse or colorism or a whole lot of other things. And so I don't even 
feel any way about them not being able to see me clearly because they don't often see themselves clearly because of their trauma. Mm-hmm. You know, we are tired. Yeah. Yeah. We can be tired. Yeah. There's been, there's been kind of an exhaustion, I think, uh, from black women in general, a lot of black women that they just don't feel heard. They don't feel seen, you know, they don't feel cared for. And they just feel tired, you know. Um, well, didn't Fannie Lou say, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah, but tired to me is an existential state. That's, yes, I am so tired of having to defend my blackness, my womanhood, my family, my right to breathe, my right to exist. But tell, I'm going to tell you now, I don't care how tired I am. I'm never going to let you colonize my mind. I love it. Wow. That is the quote. (laughs) That is the quote. I love that. So speaking of that, a lot of young people, I I do uh, systemic equity training. I work with organizations, helping them try to really change systems in their businesses. You know, I really, I'm really trying to figure out how do we move equity beyond words to action internally in organizations? But inevitably, I talk to younger people, and by younger people, I mean like 30s and younger, 35 and younger, and they just feel, I'm getting this energy where they just feel like they don't know where to go. Like they thought certain things were different or were going to be different by this time, and they seem both a little shell-shocked and a little uncertain what to, where to go next. And as someone who has uh, been engaged in the fight, who's come to the table, who has not allowed her mind to be colonized. What would you say to those younger folks who, um, you know, have justifiable anger, but also just a bit of uncertainty about where to go next? Well, I think that we all come to doing social justice and human rights work with the necessary degree of optimism. And we actually think that if you have right on your side, if you have facts on your side, if you have truth and evidence on your side, why can't people see this? I mean, that's that frustration. But at the same time, we have to adjust our time horizons. I mean, struggle is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And you are no one person or no, no one generation even is the entire chain of freedom. We're just We've just got to be the strongest links we can be in that chain. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about being tired myself, I can't help but remember that my mother cleans white folks' houses on her hands and knees and raised eight kids. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to talk about how exhausted I am sitting on my butt in front of a computer and organizing. I mean... (laughs) Mm -hmm. The scale. (laughs) You're right. And so... When I was 16 and 17, I thought the revolution was tomorrow. And when it didn't happen by the time I was in my late 20s, I thought that I should give up. And fortunately, I was surrounded by a lot of elderly black women who had invested in me, even though I was a mouthy, gutter mouth woman with baby dreadlocks that they didn't even understand. <laughs> I had all this nappy hair over my head and they were fried live and laid to the side. But they didn't give up on me. And they kept encouraging me and kept telling me, Loretta, you can't cuss all the time. 
(laughs) And you need to do something about those nails if you're going to represent us. It's that kind of thing. (laughs) And uh, so that's what I offer to younger people who feel despondent, who don't think that they should continue to work on the same issues year after year. Guess what? Roe v. Wade was in 1973. And at that time, none of us thought we'd still be fighting for abortion rights in the Supreme Court. You know, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 made us think that the, that we finally achieved something. And look at us. We're still dealing with voter suppression and, and, and all kinds of racial discrimination. And we've got a president who's frankly calling for a race war. Yeah. Like we need a new civil war so they can take a bit, another shot at winning it this time. Mm-hmm. And so... We are standing on our ancestors' shoulders, blessed to have the opportunity to lift our voices to fight. And we can't take that privilege for granted. And we certainly can't take our consciousness for granted because a lot of people aren't as woke as we are. And they just have to go to work, survive as best they can, take care of their family. And they don't even have an analysis of what's happening to them. Right. That's a very interesting point. Yeah. So you can't. Consciousness is a privilege. And you can't squander that privilege feeling sorry for yourself. I, well, I like that framing. That's a, another, I think, very helpful framing. Um, helpful for me because I know I'm engaged in this work every day. And sometimes it feels like an ant, you know, going up a hill. And uh, there are people with flamethrowers on the top of the hill. <laughs> and, uh, rolling that rock up the hill. And then you got a flamethrower at the top once you get there. Right? <laughs> You know, as I, I told people, I, uh, I'm apparently a heretic and a communist for talking about uh, race and how anti-blackness shows up in the United States, according to the president, and apparently according to a memo sent out to well, school I mean, districts. We're, we're all black identity extremists as far as they're concerned. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I have the other benefit of living in an anarchist city, so I'm just all messed up. I'm in Portland right. in an anarchist city right. and I'm exactly. heretic. So yeah, I'd like I, to think I'm in the right place at the right time. <laughs> you actually are. The universe is much wiser than any of these buffoons who are in power. And they tend the universe tends to provide us the opportunities we need at the time we're best prepared to accept them. Because if they come too early, we don't know what they are. And if they come too late, we can't do nothing about it. And so if you look at your challenges as opportunities, they're really developing your stamina muscles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I like to say to people who are feeling frustrated that, you know, I like to say the arc of the moral universe bends toward justice. That's true. But every one of us is bending it. It doesn't bend in a fell swoop. It takes each push, each little push to keep bending it. And if it's going to bend toward justice, we all have to be a participant in bending it, you know. That's, a, that's very profound. I have a couple of other things that I say to young people. First of all, they need to understand that fighting fascism should be fun. It's being a fascist that sucks. So keep perspective. You know? And the second thing is that I've been in the movement more than 50 years because, again, those elderly Black women cautioned me and said, you know you need to party as hard as you work. You have to keep balance in your life. Otherwise, you'll just become a short-term movement tourist. You'll burn out so quickly that 
you'll just retreat into not being political because you're burnt out. I'm really interested in what you just said about a movement tourist. That's that's actually, I know that phrase is, is out there, but there is a lot of concern that some um, white folks and other people of color are, are movement tourists right at the moment that, you know, in, like for instance, you'll see people say, Oh, I supported black lives matter until uh, you know, something burned down or until this. And it's like, well, then did you really, or um, you know, there's this concern about this kind of tourism of people not being in it for the long haul. Is that a concern or do we just take, you know, the allyship when we have it and we keep moving? Yeah. I'm not particularly concerned about that because see, even if they're movement tourists, they're not strengthening our opponents. So that's a win already. Because they, you know, most particularly most white folks, full throat support of white supremacy until 2016, even though they didn't say that. Wow. But 2016 was a, an alarm clock for them. Like their whole project of democracy is at risk now. Mm-hmm. And so they're inching towards a consciousness people of color in general, and black folks have had for a long time. It's like they're cramming for a test they, for, that's, that's due tomorrow. They've had 400 years to study. <laughs> so, so I'm not going to call them out and, and, and criticize them for how recently they woke up. I'm glad they woke up sufficiently to not be on the other side because every woke white person is weakening the opponents. So even well, if they do nothing sit on their computer and 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 re-click Black Lives Matter and don't do another thing, they're still on our side because they are not on the other side. That may be why the government and uh, other folks are fighting so hard against this movement, because they're concerned about how many white people have started cramming for that story. demonstrations took place this summer in the midst of COVID. Right. And, and that's most one of those were not by Black people. And that gets to why Portland is frequently targeted as a predominantly white city. How dare this white city, you know, support in the way they do Black Lives Matter. And there is this this pushback. Well, Loretta, I appreciate your time this morning. I don't want to take all of your time. I know you're busy and have many things to do, but I do want to kind of end or, or as we end. I have this one kind of question because you've spent a lot of time working with women and women's issues and cross racially. And one continuing vexing issue is how black women and white women come to some agreement and understanding. You know, I I like to say we walk different roads on femininity, Uh, black women, white women, Asian women, trans women. You know, we, we walk different roads to get there. And sometimes when we get to the intersection, it can feel a little bit like a Tower of Babel. Like we aren't exactly hearing each other. And there seems to be just this pernicious um, difficulty of, uh, you know, we all have dualities, but white women in particular have a dual role as, as oppressed and as oppressor. And having these conversations seems in particularly hard. Um, I don't know if it's just on white women's part that it's difficult for them, but this this one intersection of groups seems to still be uh, uh, not fleshed out as to how we have this conversation. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, since I've been in the women's movement for almost the entirety of my career, I was the third executive director of the first rape crisis center in this country back in the 1970s. 
So I feel I have as much ownership of the women's movement and the movement to end violence against women as any white woman, I mean, first of all. So I'm not fighting to be heard. I mean, that's not my that's not my positionality. Uh, I think there's as many feminisms as there are feminists. I don't think everybody needs to walk the same path to get to a certain place. And white people are noticing their whiteness in different ways right now. And they don't know what to do with that. And maybe inappropriately, they're asking people of color in general and black people in particular to help them address this and solve this. And a lot of times black people are healing from the wounds and saying, talk to the hand. I have no interest in being your personal mammy educator. But at the same time, some of us are saying, I'm glad you asked because we need you to learn how to be a different kind of white person. And I'm willing to help you do that. Um, These are very welcome conversations for me. I don't mind debate. I don't mind discomfort. I don't mind distress because that all of those are conditions of growth. You can't grow from a stagnated, a stagnant place. You have to actually have the friction of debate and, and conflict and, and, and growth in order to produce growth. And so I don't, I'm not bothered by that. Yeah. If I see 500 women in the room, some going to be black, some going to be trans, some going to be white, some going to be gay, some going to be lesbian. Some of them going to be a whole lot of things. And I bet you there'll be 500 definitions of feminism in that same room. But what really gives me comfort is that when a lot of people think a lot of different thoughts, but they move in the same direction, that's a movement. But when people, a lot of different people think one thought, and they move in the same direction. That's a cult. Mm-hmm. So we are not building a women's cult. We're yeah, building yeah. a women's movement. So bring your 500 different definitions of feminism. We love that. And I think we shouldn't try to impose the strict obedience of cult-like thinking on our movement. That would not work well for us. Let mm-hmm. our opponents act like a cult, like the cult <laughs> of personality around Donald Trump. Yeah, they're not active. They no, they believe in a cult of personality. And we're not going to use, like Audre Lorde said, the master's tools against them successfully. Awesome. I think that's a good end. And uh, Loretta, Ross, I want to just thank you so much for your generosity of spirit, your uh, generosity of time. Um, and I want to thank you for your work on my behalf. I think that a lot of times um, people who have been in the movement don't get the opportunity to have people say, you know, I, it's always blows my mind. I remember being a little kid, like learning about civil rights. It just blew my mind. I was like, these people did this stuff for me. And, uh, you know, and I, I thought that I've always thought that. And I have so much deep gratitude in my heart for you and for everyone who's done the work. And so I'm, I'm just honored to be able to thank you and to have conversation with you. Well, thank you again. I always enjoy running my mouth. So thanks for having me on your show. All right. Awesome. Hey, thank you all for listening today to The Balm and tune in next time for more healing and interesting conversation. It is the only way we're going to foster change. Remember, the arc of the moral universe does indeed bend toward justice, but it will take each and every one of us pulling to bend it. Talk to you next time.